from 1 King chapter 17. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in the Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, and that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to the mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you once again for this day and for your word. Help us now to hear your word for us. And in that hearing, strengthen us, give us hope, and help us to obey. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. 
So we are continuing our jaunt uh, through the narrative lectionary. And last Sunday, uh, we heard about the promise that God made to David that God would build David a forever house, a dynasty that would be built not on David's obedience or the obedience of his uh, descendants, but upon the sure, unchanging character of God and his promises. So after David's reign, uh, the kingdom passed to his son Solomon. And then after Solomon died, the nation fell into a civil war and the nation will be divided into a northern and southern kingdom uh, until they themselves will be defeated by various uh, neighboring countries. And so as our reading opens to situate us, the 10 northern tribes of Israel are now being ruled by King Ahab. King Ahab is considered by secular historians and archeologists to have been a good king. Under his reign, uh, the nation actually prospered politically and economically. But the biblical judgment is one of condemnation because spiritually, he was one who did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He becomes kind of the measuring stick for how bad a king can be in terms of disobedience to the Lord. In particular, it was his marriage to Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon, uh, that led now here in this moment to these series of events. Because that marriage uh, brought along, and because uh, she fostered, she nurtured the worship of the Canaanite god uh, from where she comes, uh, of Baal, and so that led the nation further down this uh, slope of uh, syncretism and of moving away now from the one worship of the one true God. So presumably then as a judgment against Ahab uh, of abandoning the worship of God, the prophet Elijah just suddenly appears out of nowhere and he proclaims a coming drought. And then three miracle stories follow to establish Elijah as a man of God, uh, to set him up now for the next chapter, because in the next chapter is when we have the, this fiery showdown between the prophet of God, Elijah, and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So as a prelude here now, these stories that we just heard declare emphatically that God, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of Hannah, the God of David, is the one and only true God. Elijah's very name points to this, meaning my God is Yahweh, or my God is Jehovah. As in the words of the Highlander, there can only be one. Baal and Yahweh cannot coexist together. And so this is why Elijah declares a drought as opposed to some other natural disaster. Baal was the Canaanite god, god of thunder and of rain, of fertility. Uh, he was known as the rider of the clouds. And so by stopping the rains, the god of Elijah proves God's power over Baal. Furthermore, the drought extends to Zarephath, to Sidonian territory, the center of Baal worship and where Queen Jezebel comes from. The god of Israel is not some local deity confined to the realm of the Israelites. He's the God, the Lord of all. God's power extends to all of the earth and to all of God's creatures, and that God is able even to command the ravens against their natural instincts to provide food 
for Elijah. As life is threatened, we see God's provisions prevail over scarcity and even death because God is declared the God of life. Now I know that um, miracle stories present a challenge for many modern people. Many believers, frankly, are embarrassed by these sorts of stories. We think that maybe those people who lived in you know, ancient times, uh, you know, in an unsophisticated era, pre-scientific revolution, that yeah, maybe they can believe in ravens acting like Grubhub delivery guys, right? But we certainly know better, like that can't happen. And so we, we tend to look for natural explanations or we try to frame these miracle stories as, as myth or fables or uh, allegory that are just simply meant to teach us some spiritual lesson. Now, that may seem like a reasonable approach, but unfortunately, the Christian faith is built on a miracle, on something that people would consider perhaps even more embarrassing. The entire faith that we profess is built on the premise that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, was buried, and three days later rose bodily. Any meaningfully historical confession of the Christian faith must begin with this premise, that Jesus Christ was crucified and he really died he was really buried, and he really ascended in a bodily resurrection. So if we're able to accept that and begin with that, then I think these other sorts of miracle stories need not stumble us. As a people of faith, miracles encourage us to dare to believe that anything is possible that unexpected and even impossible provisions are possible, that abundance and healing and life are possible, that scavengers can supply sustenance, that the poor can have abundance, and that the dead can be brought back to life. Miracles remind us that our lives are not so much restricted by the limitations of nature, but that we are under the all-encompassing embrace of the God of life. And those of you who have kept faith, those of you who have walked with God for some time, you can testify that you have experienced personally something that you would qualify as a miracle in your life. What others may view as coincidence or luck or a unlikely but mathematically possible incident, you have come to interpret and believe that it was an act of God, an act of God's mercy and grace. And living in community, the plethora of such stories strengthens that conviction. It gives you greater confidence that indeed what you have witnessed has been the outworkings of God's grace and not some mere accident. So this morning, with that in mind, I want to reflect with you something about the nature of God's provisions as related to us in these stories. First, I think we can see that God's provision for us and for Elijah and for the widow comes in both ordinary 
and extraordinary ways. I think sometimes we just want to see, like, how is God going to surprise us or what miraculous way is God going to meet my needs? But we see here this combination of both the ordinary and the extraordinary. For example, a brook, a stream, is a reasonable place to go when there is a drought. There's a drought, you go to the rivers. That is ordinary provision. God said, go there. There's water there. Ravens bringing bread and meat twice a day on schedule, that is not ordinary. That is extraordinary. That is not something that you can plan for. Going into town and asking someone for some charity for some water and hospitality, that's ordinary. That is something you can do. That is a reasonable action to take in times of desperation. So is waiting upon God's word. However, rudely asking a foreign widow that you've never met before, who's about to cook her last tiny little morsel of flour into a last meal for herself and her child, telling her to instead bake you bread with that last bit of food, and not expecting her to curse you and chase you away, that is an extraordinary grace. When the Sidonian widow first meets Elijah, she must have thought he was crazy. His words, do not be afraid, must have grated her ears. She's down to the last of her tiny resources. She's been watching her son waste away. And he has the gall to say, do not be afraid. Who does that? And yet she's torn between the, the cultural demands of extending hospitality and the reality of her own desperate situation. God told Elijah, I have commanded a widow to feed you. But it doesn't seem like this widow got that message. It's really an extraordinary choice by God. You know, ordinarily, widows are the symbols of vulnerability and weakness in the scriptures. The biblical prophets constantly proclaimed that God was on the side of the weak and included the foreigners, the orphans, and the widows as representatives of that weakness. So Elijah must have wondered, why doesn't God send me to any other person, to a, to a wealthy prince, to someone who has more resources to share, she seems like the least likely person who's going to be able to help a starving Elijah. And it's not clear why she responds to him. Maybe it was just desperation. Maybe she had this just incredible sense of hospitality. Or maybe it was just apathy. We're all going to die anyway, so what difference does it make? Whatever the reason may have been, though she has almost nothing, she still has the freedom to choose. And she chooses hospitality, and she chooses to believe the unbelievable words of the prophet Elijah, that God, that his God, will supply all of her needs. You know, none of us know how some extraordinary provision might come to us in our times of need. But in faith, but in faith, we can always choose to extend hospitality, 
compassion, and kindness. We still have that choice, regardless of our circumstances. I know that in my life, uh, there have been times when a, uh, when a timely meal or a kind word or, uh, or an encouragement, right, that was extended, uh, that was like this never-ending jar and this never-emptying jug of oil that sustained me as, as with food for many days. You and I can be the means by which God provides for others. You may think that you don't have much, that there are others who have more, and that maybe you think you're the one who is in need of receiving, and that may be true. But no matter what your particular circumstance, I think God continues to give us these, these moments, these opportunities to exercise faith and hospitality. God has commanded us, just as surely as God has commanded the widow and Elijah, to care, to care for those in our midst, particularly those who are in need. And what we think of as the ordinary provision of a meal or an act of kindness may, in fact, turn out to mean something much more for the one receiving it. It may be an extraordinary provision in their life. Second, I think we see here that Elijah has to learn to ask God for God's provisions. When her son died, the widow accused Elijah and God of bringing this misery upon her life. She mistakenly believed that she was being punished by God for some past sin. You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now, to Elijah's credit, he does not try to correct her bad theology in this moment of terrible grief. Nor does he simply accept her son's death as an unfortunate but reality of life. Nor does he tell her, do not be afraid, as he had done earlier. I think his earlier confidence in God's provision and God's goodness has been shaken. The widow's complaint has struck him to the core. So he asks, he demands of God, why, God, did you do this? How can you possibly do this? And he prays desperately, Lord, my God, let this child's life come back to him again. It's an absurd prayer. Let this child's life come into him again. No one comes back to life. We know this. And even in the Bible up to this point in the narrative, no one has come back from the dead. But that does not stop Elijah. He was not willing to accept what seemed to be an unfair outcome on the part of God. And so he calls upon the God of life to give that life back. I know that some people act and live as if God's provisions are simply to be received, that we are to do nothing, right? We're saved by grace and so we can just kind of sit back and just let God provide me with everything and I don't have to do anything. But at the very least, we see in these stories that Elijah has to act. He has to obey the word of the Lord. He has to go to the brook. He has to then go to the town of Zarephath. He has to go and seek out the widow. He has to ask for food. He has to declare God's word to her. And now he has to ask the impossible to bring life back. 
And then we see these extraordinary words in verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Elijah learned that he can be an active participant in God's provisions. That he's not a bystander. That he's not just a bystander to God's activity in the world. That he can ask God for those provisions and that God will listen. And God listens and God does for him something that God has never done before. You know, I know that when you really care about someone or something and you know someone who might have the power or the means to make a difference, you ask, you plead, you beg. Right? When someone in your life that you, you care about deeply is sick, for example, I mean, you will do anything in your power. You don't care if you have to beg or plead. You don't care if, you know, you, you're saying all the wrong words or your theology is off. You don't care if you look like someone who's drunk to the bystanders. You ask, you plead, you demand. You pray for the impossible. You ask God to intervene. And I think that asking that asking, that crazy asking, is a sign of spiritual growth. Elijah has he's grown in his own faith, right? He's not a static character here either. He's grown in his compassion, having lived with his family, and he's witnessed for himself that God is able to provide for this family in extraordinary ways. And so he's able to take this next step of appealing to God for the life of her son. And we can see here also the spiritual growth in the words of the widow. When she first encountered Elijah, she had lost the will to live. She was exhausted. She was hopeless. She was ready to die with her son. But now, now, having witnessed God's provision in her life, she is not ready to go quietly into the night. She will rage against Elijah and God. Having experienced God's provision once, she knows that God can provide once more. Maybe she's thinking of Hagar, who found herself in the wilderness watching her son Ishmael about to die and remembering that God saw and God intervened. She knows, she knows that God cares about her because God sent a foreign prophet to her town for her so that she and her son might live. She understands that this is a God who sends prophets to widows, not to the rich and powerful, but to someone like her who's just clinging to crumbs. She knows that this is a God who will not let a sparrow fall to the ground without his knowing. She knows, or she thought she knew, that this is a God of life. And so she responds differently than other grieving mothers in the scriptures. There may come a time when she will join Rachel in grieving for her lost children. But right now, she's not ready to accept that. And I think this is what growing faith looks like. It's being able to complain. Right? Complaint is still prayer. It's still looking to God. 
And here I wish I could tell you that God always intervenes and always brings life. But you and I know that that is not true. Many prayers for healing and comfort go unanswered. Now I know that there are some people who will tell you that if you pray in a particular way or use certain techniques, that you can have better outcomes so you can have better health and better wealth. But the God that at least I've come to know is not so easily manipulated. I wish I could explain better why Elijah's prayer is answered and the prayers of all the other mothers who lost children in that time and the mothers who are losing their children today, why those prayers go unanswered. There is no easy answer for this. But Philip Yancey, in his book, The Bible Jesus Read, makes at least this suggestion. He writes, I know of only one way to answer the question, does God care? And for me, it has proven decisive. Jesus is the answer. Jesus never attempted a philosophical answer to the problem of pain, yet he did give an existential answer. Although I cannot learn from him why a particular bad thing occurs, I can learn how God feels about it. Jesus gives God a face, and that face is streaked with tears. We may not understand why, but the scriptures are clear that God truly sees our suffering and intimately knows and experiences that suffering with us. And that's why we can appeal to God's nature, to God's promise, and trust that our prayers are being answered in such a way that though it may prove unsatisfying and incomprehensible to us in our moment, we can still find a way to continue to trust that somehow that those decisions, that behind those decisions, lies the compassionate wisdom of an all-knowing and suffering God. And that leads me to a final reflection, that God's provisions for us are ultimately provisional, that all of God's provisions for us in this life are impermanent. The brook dried up. The ravens stopped bringing food. The jar of oil is about to run out. The sun dies. None of the provisions that were given or were asked for lasts forever. And each time as one provision runs out, Elijah must learn once again to trust God for the next provision. God will miraculously keep that jar of flour and that jug of oil from going empty for a time. But later, once the rains come, that flour and that oil must be provided for by more ordinary means, by harvest, by market. God listened to Elijah and restored the life of the child, but that child will grow up and hopefully after a long and happy and healthy life, he will have to die again. The provision of even a miraculously restored life is provisional. All that we ask for and are provided are temporary. 
And so you might think, you know, hearing a story like this, that, you know, had I been there with the widow, had I witnessed firsthand a child coming back to life, surely my faith would be so rock solid, I would never need another provision from God ever again. But Jesus warns us in a parable that if we do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will we be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Today, we heard from the prophets. We saw how God can provide. We might not see someone rise from the dead, at least not literally, but we are all witnesses to God's ongoing provisions, both in scriptures and in the lives of the people around us. Faith trusts that God will provide for us for the day. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray. We pray for peace, for comfort, for love, for strength, for the day. And then we ask again tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. I know you've all experienced a time when you're faced with someone who drives you nuts, is driving you nuts again. And so you pray for peace. You pray for patience. You pray for calmness in responding to them. And sometimes that, that peace comes. You're filled with the Spirit and you're able to respond in a compassionate and loving way. But it doesn't last. It leaks out. It leaks out fast. It doesn't mean the Lord is no longer with you. It just means you have to ask again. Give us this day what we need for today. The life of faith requires that we continue to ask. That's why Jesus said, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. And you will be answered. And so when one set of provisions run dry, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that it's something to be discouraged about. It just means now we have an opportunity to exercise our faith once more, to see where God might provide that next provision, which itself will also be provisional. Day by day, as we seek God for those provisions, we can continue to ask, God, give me what I need for today. So I hope you can see here both the ordinary and the extraordinary ways in which God has met your needs today and that it will lead you to trust him more. And I hope that your faith is maturing so that you can pray more compassionately and passionately for the life of those people around you. And I hope that as you recognize that all earthly provisions are provisional, that it will lead not only to daily asking, but to the seeking of something that is not provisional, to seek that which is everlasting. Please pray with me. Lord, we confess that you are the God who provides and that your grace is sufficient for us. Help us to recognize in our living the ways that you provide for our needs, both ordinary and extraordinary. And help us to do our part 
to extend hospitality and compassion and to seek your favor, to seek your provisions in the lives of the people around us who are suffering. And knowing God, the impermanence of all that is, help us be thankful for the moments that we have, for the things that you provide for us today. And to recognize that there is something beyond and everlasting that awaits us. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.